From CPR News in Colorado Springs, this is Colorado Matters. Here in the Springs, the World Affairs Council is helping put the Russian invasion of Ukraine into context. Putin is obsessed with restoring not the Soviet Union, but the old Tsarist Empire. And of course, he sees all of us in the West and in NATO as an enemy determined to stop him. I think personally that Putin underestimated democracy. And he underestimated because he never lived in one. On paper, Ukraine pales in comparison. It's about one-third the size of Russia's military. Well, let me share with you a special operations truth. People are more important than hardware. When this is all over, regardless what happens with Mr. Putin, whether he wins, loses, or draws, NATO may end up looking bigger than it is today. I'm Vanessa Rivera, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. I knew that it was time, and so as soon as I got my new car, the next day, I went on CPR.org, and a lot of people were asking me, you know, how much money are you going to make out of it? I was like, actually, I'm not making any money. I'm donating my car to Colorado Public Radio. And it kind of felt like I was giving back and saying thank you for just listening. And so it was kind of like a paying it back, but also paying it forward at the same time. Learn how to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner at KRCC in Colorado Springs. The war in Ukraine changes by the day, if not the hour. It's top of mind for the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, which assembled a panel of experts on Friday to lend context to the crisis. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce moderated the discussion. And let's first meet the panelists. Ray Raymond is a longtime British diplomat who worked on the political and military relationship among the United States, the European Union, and NATO. He's now a professor at both West Point and Jan Masaryk University in the Czech Republic. Raymond's opening remarks address what Vladimir Putin is after in Ukraine. Today, we see a Russian leader who is no Gorbachev, much less a Yeltsin. So who is Vladimir Putin. He is, of course, a former KGB officer. Bob Gates, the former director of the CIA, former defense secretary, got it exactly right when he described him as, and I quote, a cold-blooded killer. I think that gets it right. And to that, I would add the words war criminal. But at the same time, we usually think of Putin as a carefully calculating, skillful tactician who shrewdly, very shrewdly, judges his actions. Just consider the ways in which he occupied Georgia and Crimea. So how do we explain Putin's recent behavior? There are a number of possible explanations. One is, of course, is that he's gone barking mad. (laughs) Become an unhinged lunatic. I don't buy that. To judge from his public statements, Putin has certainly become irrational, unbalanced, unpredictable. I think he has also become somewhat paranoid as a result of COVID-related self-isolation. And I would suggest to you that that paranoia has fed Putin's fears. Fear of failure to restore the Russian Empire. Fear for the survival of his regime. And perhaps even fear for his own personal survival. Because dictators are always fearful. 
Why? Because they lack political legitimacy. Then they always operate outside the rule of law. They are always vulnerable to assassination or a coup from within. Now, Putin's decision-making has been impaired, not only because, as Dr. Fiona Hill has suggested, and I quote, he sees himself as infallible, close quote, but because he listens to only a handful of hardline advisors who share his worldview and appear to tell him only what he wants to hear. That is very dangerous because every world leader needs advisors who have the moral courage to speak truth to power, to tell political leaders what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Now, a second explanation says basically that Putin's just gone a little awry, that he's normally a shrewd tactical thinker who is really, this time, seriously miscalculated. I'll buy a lot of that one. Putin has seriously miscalculated. Just think for a second. He misread the political realities on the ground in Ukraine. He seriously underestimated Vladimir Zelensky. He underestimated the Ukrainian army's capabilities, skills, and fierce determination to fight back. He misread the Ukrainian people's fierce and wonderful spirit to resist Russian aggression. He miscalculated the strength, cohesion, and determination of NATO. Now, there is also a third school of thought, which I also think captures a little bit of the truth. It suggests that what has been driving Putin for the past 10 years or so has been rabid Russian nationalism, supported by a kind of politico-religious theology, which manifests itself internationally as a virulent form of Russian imperialism. Putin is obsessed with restoring not the Soviet Union, but the old czarist empire. And of course, he sees all of us in the West and in NATO as an enemy determined to stop him. This new Russian imperialism is born of an unholy alliance between Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church. Indeed, the Orthodox Patriarch of Moscow has developed the politico-religious ideology that supports and legitimizes Putin as a kind of 21st century Peter the Great. This ideology, I think, provides the basis for a new and dangerous brand of Russian exceptionalism that sees Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine as a kind of holy trinity of Mother Russia. Ukraine, however, <laughs> Ukraine would not accept this role assigned to it by the Kremlin. Ukraine has repeatedly made its wishes clear that it wants control of its own destiny, and it sees that destiny within the European Union and NATO. To Putin, of course, that was unacceptable, and Ukraine had to be punished and punished harshly. But why now? The short answer, in my opinion, is that Putin thought he could get away with it, because for the past 20 years, Western leaders, left and right, have failed to grasp the essential evil of Putin. It's taken a war to wake the West up. Ray Raymond, longtime British diplomat and West Point instructor. He's one of the experts on this panel from the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, Ukraine in Crisis. Next, Carl Schneider. He's a retired Green Beret, 
Army Special Forces officer and combat veteran. During his two decades of service, he worked in NATO's High Readiness Force headquarters in Istanbul, Turkey. Schneider's introductory remarks are about the military realities on the ground in Ukraine. Russia's military is rated number two in the world by Global Firepower and many others. For reference, the top seven in order of strength are the United States, Russia, China, India, Japan, South Korea, and France. Russia's military has been unable to do or achieve its aspirational goals of a rapid win. Russia's military, though, seems to be severely handicapped. And we should ask, why is that? We must consider both tangible and the intangible qualities. I'd like to consider their equipment. It's supposedly premier. We see a lot of new tanks and other things uh, rolling across the battlefield. It ranks in the top five nations which spend the most on the military. In 2020, Russia spent $61.7 billion on its military, which accounted for 11.4% of government spending. In comparison, Ukraine spent only $5.9 billion on its military, or 8.8% of the government spending. One would think they would be able to achieve rapid success over the military of Ukraine, which on paper is considered the 22nd rated military in the world. But I would ask you to consider one other thing in addition to equipment, professionalism. Russia is, for the most part, a conscript military with a high turnover rate, which is not good for any organization, but especially for the military. Great training generally helps to instill a high degree of professionalism. Social media has provided great insight into their tactical, operational, and strategic acumen. My opinion, they are poorly led by non-commissioned officers and officers alike. You can see just the other day, they had an entire tank brigade lined front to back, and they were decimated. More critically, though, they do not understand the laws of land warfare. And I'm, now I'll unpack the Ukrainian military. On paper, tangibly, their military pales in comparison to Russia. It's about one-third the size of Russia's military. 200,000 active personnel in Ukraine to Russia's 900,000. 1,800 artillery pieces to Russia's 4,800. 622 armored personnel carriers to Russia's 6,100. I'm not going to drain any more because you, you can tell clearly, on paper, Ukraine pales in comparison. Well, let me share with you a special operations truth. People are more important than hardware. And let me say that again. It's a special operations, you know, where I grew up, special operations truth. People are more important than hardware. A weak leader, when given a fine-tuned machine or a brand new equipment, will destroy it. A naturally strong leader can take a dysfunctional or poorly trained group of people and turn them into a highly functioning organization, and they can do so rapidly. Zelensky, by all counts, was thought to be the former. For goodness sake, he was a comic. But look at what he's done with his country. I mentioned earlier the, land of, the law of land warfare, and I'd like to come back to that topic and talk about a professional military. The bottom line is a commander in the military is responsible for everything their unit does or fails to do, period, end of story. Commander responsibility, also called superior responsibility. You can call it the Yamashita standard or the Medina standard, is the legal doctrine of hierarchical accountability for war crimes. The legal doctrine of command responsibility was codified in the Hague Conventions and is relevant today. It applies to the Russian commanders, 
from the very lowest commander all the way up the chain of command to Vladimir Putin himself. The law of land warfare has four basic principles. We hear about war crimes in the news, but we don't hear them explain it, so I'm going to unpack that just a little bit. There are four basic principles to protect both civilians, non-combatants, and the military, combatants. They are a distinction. In order to ensure respect for and protection of the civilian population and civilian objects, the parties of the conflict shall at all times distinguish between the civilian population and combatants, and between civilian objects and military objects, and accordingly shall direct their operations only against military objectives. I would posit that the Russians are not doing that. Proportionality. Loss of life and damage to property incidental to attacks must not be excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage expected to be gained. Again, I would suggest that the collateral damage is not being considered in any way, shape, or form by the Russians. Military necessity, the third principle. Every injury done to the enemy, even though permitted by the rules, is excusable only so far as it is absolutely necessary. Everything beyond that is criminal. Lastly, it is prohibited to employ weapons, projectiles, and materials and methods of warfare of a nature to cause superfluous injury or unnecessary suffering. Carl Schneider, retired Green Beret and Army Special Forces officer. When we come back, how the invasion of Ukraine has consequences far beyond its borders. This is Ukraine in Crisis from the World Affairs Council here in Colorado Springs. You're with CPR News and KRCC. We are all broken. You may have heard me say that many times over the past couple of years, but it's true. We're all broken in our own ways and we all need help from time to time. And when we can meet each other with empathy and compassion, well, that's where we can find hope. And that's exactly what Back From Broken is all about. And it's why we're coming back for a third season. So please make sure you're following Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Back From Broken, with support from Lift the Label. Ukraine is in crisis. And here in Colorado Springs, the World Affairs Council gathered experts to lend context. We are hearing first from each of the panelists. A little later, my colleague, Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce, moderates a discussion among them. Next, Eden Moikich. He's an associate professor of national security and foreign policy at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Before moving to the U.S., he worked for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and for NATO in his native Bosnia-Herzegovina. His opening comments focus on what Russia's invasion might mean for non-NATO countries in the region. Countries that are not NATO members or, or EU members for that matter, seen this coming for some time. And um, Georgia, Moldova, especially Moldova, Bosnia, Montenegro, Macedonia, which are actually NATO members, but, but I'll come to that, why they matter in this story. Seen for the last 15 years, the Russian meddling into their elections, into their internal affairs, using the weaknesses of their government structures, etc., to confuse the country, to get some goals that really I have a hard time understanding what, what are they. The situation in these countries that I mentioned are definitely, and I have to emphasize definitely here, 
consequence of the behavior of the European Union too. For a long time, the European Union treated these countries as kind of, I think afterthought would be the least worst word, to put it this way. <laughs> okay. Um, including Ukraine, that they are just not a members of the, of the European family, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Putin used that. Putin used that to his advantage because uh, after trying to meet these demands by the European Union to become basically a Germany in a few years, you know, people got tired of it. They got tired of it, and the populists uh, in those countries, in Georgia, in Moldova, etc., uh, especially in the Balkans, used that uh, to, 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 to offer some alternative, that there is this big Slavic brother over there in, in Moscow that's going to take care of, of them, you know. Georgia, for example, right now has a pro-Russian government, although as soon as Ukraine was invaded, 300,000 people got out and protested this. But week after that, uh, Georgians signed a trade deal with the, with, the, with the Russians, you know. So definitely something to look at it. Moldova is in really bad situation. It, it can't be emphasized how, how, in what kind of situation they have. They have around 1,000 Russian troops already in Moldova since 1992 in a region called Transistria, which borders the uh, Ukraine. If Ukraine falls, guess what happens? I would really like to think that there is 1% of chance that Putin wouldn't go into Moldova, but I highly doubt. So, so Moldovans are really looking at this with, with um, horror, what's happening in the, in the Ukraine. And Moldova is a very tiny country. It's by far the poorest country in Europe. And what happens in Ukraine actually determines their, their fate. However, uh, the response by the West to the Ukrainian crisis definitely gave hope to these countries. The immediate reaction by the politicians in Moldova in, in, in some other countries was to press on the European Union to reconsider their accession demands, basically to kind of get on a fast track to accept these countries. Uh, in the Balkans, situation is very complicated because of Serbia. Uh, Serbia played for the last 10 years a double game trying to get supposedly to European Union, but playing uh, games with the Putin. Uh, Serbia, Belarus, and Russia are the countries that have every year military exercises. So when this happened, Serbians definitely kind of got in a pickle because they would really like to go to European Union but they would also really like to, to have that strong connection with Russia. And they're not really the most honest player right now. Serbia is the only European country that maintains flights, except Turkey, that maintains flights to Moscow. The busiest route right now in Europe is the route between Belgrade and Moscow. And you started to talk about it, what this actually means, because oligarchs are using Belgrade as a way to get out, and other wealthy people in Russia. So definitely something to, to look at. But Serbia, Russia is using Serbia in other ways. It's undermining extremely complicated government structure in Bosnia, where you have a one strongman called Miller Adotic, who is basically Putin's player. But to what point Russian meddling goes into these countries is the fact that Putin said that it's a threat to Russian national security if Bosnia enters NATO. And I think the West really needs to um, how to say, gather the sheep and get more unified, especially when it comes to these smaller countries that are members of NATO, not to 
play anymore double games. We are living in a different world. We are not living in a world that existed 20 days ago. We live in a new Cold War, so it's time for some countries to start to behave that way. A new Cold War. That's the voice of Eden Moikic, Associate Professor of National Security and Foreign Policy at UCCS. The fourth voice on this panel, Ukraine in Crisis, belongs to Sky Forrester, Professor Emeritus at the Air Force Academy here in Colorado Springs, where he also graduated. Forrester served as a senior advisor in security and arms control policy for the Air Force. He's now a visiting professor at Colorado College and Jan Maastricht University in the Czech Republic. His initial remarks are about the West's response to Russia's invasion. In a word, the West's response has been stunning. By the West, I mean the U.S., our allies, not only in Europe, but in Asia, the G7 economies, much of the rest of the world, in fact, plus a substantial number of global corporations and financial institutions. Altogether, we have all demonstrated in the face of this crisis an extraordinary singleness of purpose, which is to dissuade Vladimir Putin from continuing this war. And the first question you have to ask is why? I think it's because we've all recognized this is different. A nuclear-armed superpower invaded a non-nuclear democratic neighbor because of the alleged sin of trying to associate itself more closely with the West. When this is all over, regardless what happens with Mr. Putin, whether he wins, loses, or draws, NATO may end up looking bigger than it is today. Countries with long-established neutrality positions and cultures, Sweden and Finland, actively reconsidering membership in NATO, just to start. In Germany, which had been criticized over the last several years for being too lenient with Mr. Putin, has made a fundamental reversal of many elements of its security and foreign policy. And for our part, the U.S. is now viewed much more favorably than it used to be. A 10-year high by recent polls, Russia is considered the least trustworthy of nations. On the business side, approximately 330 companies in a number that's growing have withdrawn or shut down stores and distribution centers within Russia. Luxury stores, clothing companies, Ikea, Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, credit card companies from American Express or MasterCard or, or Visa, manufacturing companies like Boeing and Airbus and Caterpillar, Hitachi, Major accounting firms, Goldman Sachs is the first Wall Street firm to exit Russia. Oil companies like Shell, BP, and ExxonMobil have ended their participation in ongoing projects. It's clear that Putin anticipated and tried to protect himself from a lot of these sanctions, but it's also safe to say that the economic, political, cultural, and social isolation that he and Russia are facing greatly exceed his expectations. He miscalculated this just as he miscalculated, as you've heard, both the capability of his own military as well as Ukraine's resistance. The result is that Putin may achieve a military victory in Ukraine, if by that we mean occupying a lot of territory, destroying a lot of stuff, and perhaps even installing a puppet government in Kyiv. But it is extremely unlikely that he will achieve a political victory if that means pacifying the Ukrainian people. Even in victory, Russia will be a pariah state for a long time to come, and perhaps the best outcome we can hope for in this will be an end of violence, but the onset of a frigid cold, not hot war, at least as long as Putin and those like him remain in power. 
Sky Forrester, a U.S. Air Force veteran who's worked in security and arms control policy. He's a professor at CC here in the Springs. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with my colleague, CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce, asking these experts about Putin's temperament and NATO expansion. I'm Ryan Warner at KRCC. This is CPR News. Cathay Williams was born into slavery in Missouri. Just a teenager in the Civil War, she was freed by Union soldiers and began paid work as a servant in the Federal Army. Then the war ended, and she found a novel way to maintain her financial independence. She enlisted. Women were not allowed to serve at that time, so Cathay Williams posed as a man under the name William Cathay. She was made one of the Buffalo Soldiers, the all-black peacetime regiment of the Army, Musket in hand, she marched from fort to fort in the plains and southwest. After two years, she'd had enough and allowed the military to discover she was a woman and was honorably discharged. Cathay Williams moved to Pueblo, had a short and unhappy marriage, and died in Trinidad in 1892. Today, a marker there declares, her service represents the contributions of all African-American women who helped settle the West. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Coble and Company. Ukraine in crisis. Why now and what's next? That was the focus of a panel discussion Friday night from the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. The moderator, my colleague, CPR Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce. So 75 years after World War II, two of the closest allies of the United States are Germany and Japan. And some of that comes through initiatives like the Marshall Plan, which sought to pick West Germany back up, even though they had just been our fierce and existential foe. Some of the framing from, say, Russian loyalists is there was not the same kind of aggressive investment after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, that the West basically has just been continuing to look for excuses to just dunk on Russia ever since. So I brought this up in a call that we all had on Thursday, and you basically all took issue with that framing. Why? Because it's wrong. Briefly, as regards the Marshall Plan, the United States extended the offer of Marshall Plan assistance to the Soviet Union and was rebuffed. It extended it to the countries of East Central Europe and was rebuffed. And since the end of the Cold War, the West delivered a great deal of assistance to Russia. The Russians could have taken the end of the Soviet Union as an opportunity to build a new and better society. They chose the outcome that they did. They chose it, not us. And as regards, for example, NATO expansion, I mean, what were we to do? Were we to turn away the legitimate demands of countries who had suffered horrifically under Soviet oppression for decades, and indeed many of most of them during the Second World War under the Nazis, and what they wanted was peace, prosperity, and security? Were we supposed to turn them away? No, absolutely not. What people forget is that the United States and NATO in general were against the enlargement of NATO until about 1996. Uh, late 95. 
I remember we were working with NATO allies in Europe at the time, and they were pleading with us to be part of the West, EU, and NATO. And we were coming up with alternatives. They said, well, you don't really need to do that. The kicker in the switch in U.S. policy was when Poland's Lech Walesa and the Czech Republic's Václav Havel took Bill Clinton aside and said, you don't understand what it's like to live in the shadow of the former Soviet Union. We are either going to be in the West or we will be subjugated by them. And that was a reversal of Clinton's policy. So it wasn't like it was some evangelical thing on our part that we were trying to get them in. Uh, the last time we brought any country, with the exception of Montenegro and, and North Macedonia, the last time we brought a country into NATO was in 2005. That was a little while ago. And the last thing I'll say is that before we entered into any negotiations with a NATO country or the, with a prospective NATO member on that to admit them, NATO signed the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which was clear about what we were going to do, also clear about what we were not going to do. We were not going to give them a veto, but that we were, wanted to build a broader relationship. But that has all been rejected by this notion that Mr. Putin keeps saying is that, well, back in 92, Jim Baker said, and of course he wasn't there, and nothing was ever written down. I don't know who said what, but it didn't matter. We had an agreement in 97, and we've stuck to it. Of course, we don't know how the conflict will end. What lessons could or should the West take from the end of the Cold War in dealing with Russia now, if any? The lessons from, the, from that period are, I don't think they matter anymore right now. Uh, we'll, we'll, whoever says that they know what's going to happen, they don't. Is Putin going to be next 20 years until he dies from natural death there? Or someone is going to assassinate him? Or no one knows what's going to happen. But I'm not sure we're going to have the same approach we had in 91, 92. Like, you know, it's going to be more cautious. The problem, the really, the key issue here, because only way Russians are going to, government is going to change if Russians do something about it. We're not going to invade Russia or something like that. Is what kind of chaos we're going to have. And let's not forget, they have 6,500 nuclear warheads. And chaos is really not a good thing. And I'm sorry to say here, but... This is not a fairy tale, and in some way, Putin might be, in Russia, better option than chaos, regardless of how unpopular that sounds. Because, again, chaos in a country with 6,500 nuclear warheads is not something we want. You all touched on briefly this idea about President Putin's changing temperament, and we've seen these photos spreading online of this almost cartoonishly long table where President Putin is sitting at one end and then this cadre of advisors is this, you know, cartoonish distance away. And then there is also this perception that, that what you have in Russia is this just absolute vertically oriented pyramid hierarchy with the power just fully concentrated into that one man in Vladimir Putin. So I wonder, you know, to what degree is that true, that Putin just, that he does at this point have this unchallengeable authority and this difference in temperament that we're seeing, how should it change the way the West approaches engaging with him now? One thing, are you sure he's sitting there because of COVID? In 2004, he said, once KGB agent, always KGB agent. He might be afraid that someone is going to assassinate him. Yeah. Someone is going to take a small caliber weapon and assassinate him. So, so we have to take that into consideration. Yeah. 
I think the thing that you don't see is everything outside of the picture frame. What is the security like outside of that frame? That's what I'm curious about. Um, yeah. You said that he unchallenged power. I think he thinks it's unchallenged. There are a lot of potential challenges. I mean, he has depended upon, I mean, I can paint some possible scenarios, and this is, my, this is me now being the most wishful thinking I can be, right? <laughs> One of them is that the military itself realizes that they have been put in an untenable situation, because most of those troops didn't even know where they were going yeah. and what they were doing, and that they are a proud people. That is a proud profession. I've known many Russian military officers, and they're very proud of their professionalism. Some of them aren't professionals, but most of them are. The officers, the leaders, they are professionals. And professionalism may well, at, at to, after a point, win out hmm. over loyalty. The oligarchs, who depend upon Putin for their wealth and privilege and status, but Putin depends upon them for their support, if they begin to fall away, then that's another break. That's another fracture in that. And I think we're now up to 15 or 20,000 people in Russian jails. They got lots of jails, but it's going to get untenable. And if police on the street are now begin to be ordered to shoot people in the streets, if that kind of chaos starts. So these are ways in which the regime could fall apart from within. And technically, yeah. President Putin could be impeached. Well, I think more likely they would just, he would just be escorted out. I mean, as they have with many of the Soviet predecessors in the Soviet Union. Yeah. So, Ed, and you're, you were shaking your head when I, I mentioned this notion of impeachment. Oh, well, yeah, because uh, Russia has this uh, facade that they like kind of have some kind of institutional structure or uh, rules, institutional rules. But they don't. It's, it's, it's a Putin and it's his clique around. And uh, now the question is, and I would agree with Dr. Forrester, uh, it might be military, you know, because uh, they've seen what's going on, you know, and they are humiliated. Yeah. They are and, humiliated. Yeah. And I would comment, too, Sky, to your point about professionalism. I know I knocked them a lot earlier, but I grew up in D.C., and when I was in high school and I was in show choir, I was in show choir and Glee before Glee was cool, <laughs> I had the opportunity to go to the Kennedy Center and to see the Red Army Chorus perform. And it was absolutely stunning and moving to see, at that time, early 80s, to see the Red Army Chorus that was, you know, they were still the Soviet Union, to hear them sing in song and the arts, the artistry of the music. And it was deep and moving. It was powerful, very powerful. It left a deep impression on me. So much like I saw in the Ivory Coast in 1999 when the military was fed up with the government and how they were being treated, I do think that there is going to be, hopefully, that kernel of honor that will come out, and they'll fix it. We'll see. So right now, U.S. military personnel, they're not officially involved on the ground in the conflict in Ukraine. Certainly, the United States is, is sending arms, providing financial assistance to Ukraine, of course, executing these just increasingly severe economic sanctions on Russia. But of course, U.S. military is paying every sort of attention to this. And I think it's, it's just important for us to remember and to put in context just how instrumental is Colorado Springs and the Pikes Peak region 
in how the military is interacting with this conflict right now? Yeah, well, we're very integral. Obviously, the military right now is doing their intelligence preparation of the battlefield. Uh, we always do that. In, in Colorado Springs, we have the 10 Special Forces Group. I had the honor and privilege of uh, being assigned there uh, for a period of time. Their area of orientation is Europe. So there's no doubt in my mind, I'm not privy to any information uh, at this time, but I'm fairly certain that they're more than likely focused. Am I correct? The 10th Special Forces Group does have within it a, a number of sort of Russian language experts and that the group is designed in part to almost run insurgency operations in yes. around yeah. the Russian-speaking part of the world? Yes. The uh, Special Forces Green Berets, unconventional warfare is, is what they're well-trained in doing. All Special Forces have a language. I speak Turkish. I speak French. And yes, they have linguists. They study language all the time. Um, yeah. yeah. An article from Al Jazeera reports the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C. Is, is being approached by this sort of large number of Americans looking to volunteer to go over to fight in Ukraine, oftentimes sort of former service members. I, I just, in, you know, in, in my life, I have never come across or heard about something like that. I wonder how common is something like that, uh, especially amongst U.S. veterans. So I'm still in touch with a lot of folks who are, you know, of course, retired. And there are folks that are going over to Poland and in other uh, NATO countries to provide medical support, some former special forces operators that are going to do that, 18 Deltas and the like. But there are a lot of folks that are moved by what they see in the news. And they are volunteering to go over because they understand the humanitarian crisis that is going on there. And they're willing to step up. Carl, before this evening's event, you and I were speaking briefly, and there is this complication where President Zelensky has asked uh, folks coming over, say former service members who are coming over, to, to essentially wear their uniforms, to wear their colors, to announce where they're from. This, of course, brings this complication when we're talking about the optics right. of having these forces on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know Scott is chomping at the bit. Um, but I would suggest it does, because what is your status, right? Uh, as as a, a, a soldier, an active duty soldier, you have a protected status uh, with the Geneva Convention. As a, you could be considered a mercenary uh, or a spy or some other thing, it's really risky on the part of that individual to go over there, because what is your status? You, you have certain, as a combatant, you are protected in some way, shape, or form, supposed to be, by the law of land warfare. And if you go over there without those protections, who knows what's going to happen to you when you get caught up in a firefight and you get rolled up. Yeah. I just, and, and I would just add, the, the real problem, and I suspect that the reason Mr. Zelensky, I'm taking your word for what he said, uh, that he may have hoped that there would be a visible international military presence on his territory because he wants the West to be much more engaged in this. He's pleading for it. His view of the risk to the West are not the same as ours for totally understandable reasons. I get it. But the difficulty here is that if Mr. Putin were looking for an alibi, an excuse to widen this war, that is all he needs to show. It just feeds into his talking points about, see, here is proof. NATO's in this. 
They've got their special forces in there. They're pretending to be informal. They're pretending to be something they're not. And then that just feeds into his, that narrative, and that's dangerous. I just want to add one other thing. I've seen a lot of volunteers during the Bosnian War. It's a double-edged sword. Uh, you have a lot of people who are going to go there and try to help, you know, humanitarian aid, uh, medical stuff, etc. You will have people who are going to there because they love wars. And you really want to keep them under the unified command, under central command, and keep an eye on, on these people because some people might do some bad stuff, yep. some really bad stuff. And that, that's why I think he's pushing because to go under Ukrainian uniforms and all that because, you know, they have to be in a chain command because if they do something stupid, they enter the village, they kill everyone in the village, it's going to be bad press. It gives alibi to Putin. People in the West are going to start questioning why we are doing this. So, so you, you, exactly. yeah, you really have to keep an eye on the volunteers when we talk about it. It's not that simple, like, yeah, let's go, you know. There are a lot of issues with that. Would President Zelensky be hiring contractors for this sort of thing? I don't think he needs them. He has enough manpower, I think. Sure, okay. So it's well understood that the, the Russian Federation has been engaging in this, um, in much more of what we would call soft power for the greater part of a decade. And what I mean in this context is this, you know, using cyber warfare such as particularly the use of bots on social media to hyper-inflame partisan divisions in the United States as an effort to um, pull this Western-style democracy apart. And in many ways, it, it's been pretty effective. And meanwhile, right now, the whole world is still reeling from the pandemic, you all seem to be aligned in this position that broadly this has been a miscalculation from Vladimir Putin. Uh, however, if he was intent on making this move, going back to that question of why, would now have been a good time for him to do so geopolitically? I'd say no. I'd say no because, too. again, it's only a good time if you think you're going to succeed easily accomplish your politic, political objectives at lower risk and lower cost, present the West with a fait accompli, present Zelensky with a fait accompli, much like they did in 2014, mm -hmm. when we were not nearly as prepared as we are now. We have done a lot in NATO since 2016 to beef up NATO's capabilities. So it's only a good time mm -hmm. in his mind because of the calculus he made, whether it's he thinks the you know we're all distracted by COVID, the political polarization in the United States. Um, he's he thinks he has the good housekeeping seal of approval from Xi Jinping, which may or may not be true. He, he thinks he's got his ducks lined up and he can go in and get this done quickly. And the problem is for him, is that he hasn't succeeded in doing that, and now it's a much more difficult and more high stakes event. I agree with that. From a diplomatic standpoint, I'll just add one thing. The big diplomatic wild card in all of this is China. They have been hedging the bets of the United Nations Security Council. They've been abstaining. They have not been supporting the Russians at the same time. Of course, back in China, they are using their state control of the media to further disseminate Putin's disinformation. But at the end of the day, the one person who... 
Putin really respects is Xi Jinping, and they are the wild card in all of this. One last follow-up then. How closely should the United States be watching Taiwan right now? Always very closely. There. Can I just say something that everyone is going to feel good about it? <laughs> For a change. <laughs> um, I think personally that Putin underestimated democracy. He saw the divisions in the United States and the European Union, the right-wing parties, Orban, and uh, small Orbans and all that, Bolsonaro in Brazil, and, and what we have here. But democracy, by definition, is a chaos. It's, it's a chaos. You know, it's uh, these parties fighting for their political place and all that. And he underestimated because he never lived in one. He might read it. But I'll put my academic hat here, research academic hat, because I did a lot of research on IMET, International Military Education Training Program, exactly about this issue. How these foreign officers that are coming from newly democratic countries, or maybe not democratic countries, actually understand democracy. And it's not like in the books. So I think he misread democracies. He thought he has so division, chaos, and we are falling down. We are, we are failing. And I think that was his mistake in this. A discussion of Ukraine at the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council. Moderator Dan Boyce also took questions from the audience. Wahid Saifuddin from Colorado Springs, also a student of School of Public Affairs at the UCCS. We know in 2005 the United Nations, including all the international communities, adopted and committed to Article of responsibility to protect, and we successfully used that article in Libya, but we failed to use it in Syria, and we are still failing to use it in Yemen. Should we be satisfied with the certain selective economic sanction against Russia that we have chosen? For example, the United States ban Russian oil import while the European states still consume Russian oil. Do you think just selective economic sanction is enough to stop war crime in Ukraine? Or the international community, especially the United States and NATO member, has, have a moral obligation and have a commitment to the international community, to the, uh, to the international norms, and to the uh, democracy to actually enact that articles and use it the same way they did it in Libya? Thank you. Do we have a moral obligation? I think we could all make that, make that choice, but we also have a moral obligation not to send the world into a nuclear war. So we have multiple moral obligations going on here. In terms of the legal obligation of that 2005 summit declaration at the UN, the specifics of that particular declaration said in the context of Chapter 7 under the UN Security Council, let's see, who has a veto in the UN Security Council? That would be Russia. So the UN Security Council will never act on this. So in that respect, Russia has negated that 2005 declaration from a legal standpoint, and the moral one, well, that's a, that's a bigger moral conundrum for all of us. We must put selective sanctions. The uh, reason for that is that 40% of the German gas is coming from Russia. Oil, same way. There are huge issues with the gas prices in Europe right now. You really don't want to starve Europe of energy, and then people in Europe start asking, well, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. 
we have to keep balancing this support for Ukrainians and kind of keep economies going on because it would be really tragic if people in, in European Union start asking questions, why are we doing this? Because they can't afford you know, basic necessities. So it's a politics. And I know we live in a society that everything wants in a second day delivery, but this is going to last. And we have to, we have to be strategic about it and not be carried by, by emotions. Keep in mind, we're all democracies. I mean, and I don't want to speak on behalf of our continental brethren, but they have been, one has to understand the political dilemmas that they face, and Eden is absolutely right. Germany in particular, I mean, 40% of its gas supplies uh, come from Russia. Austria's in the same boat as well. You can't just, you know, say, okay, no worries, we'll just do without 40% of our gas supplies. Because in a democracy, you have to be able to rally public support behind your policies. If you don't, you're going nowhere. And so it's, it's very difficult indeed. Can I also say as well, because having worked for Tony Blair, I mean, he was a prime mover behind the this whole uh, doctrine to our duty to uh, protect. But in a speech he made, it was in Chicago in 2000, he made the point that yes, we should do this, but he also said, we can't intervene everywhere, right? And in choosing where we should intervene, we have to look at a number of very difficult criteria. Can we actually make a realistic difference? Can we do it at um, an affordable price, both in blood and treasure? And as regards um, Libya, yes, <laughs> Libya's turned out to be the Queen's garden party, um, um, you know, hasn't it? I mean, we didn't, we went in there and we, Britain, France, backed by the United States, yes, we toppled Gaddafi, but then what? Um, <laughs> we had no effective plan to build uh, Libya and look at what's happened since then. It's been, it's been absolute chaos. A discussion of Ukraine from the Colorado Springs World Affairs Council, moderated by CPR's Dan Boyce. Our thanks to the experts, Ray Raymond, Carl Schneider, Eden Moikic, and Sky Forrester. Special thanks to CPR's Pedro Lumbrano and Carl Bielek. I'm Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.